Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. My intention is to preserve American democracy by preventing America from taking part in another world war. It's 1940 and Franklin D. Roosevelt has just lost the election. calling us war agitators. Listen to that crowd. America's new president is Charles Lindbergh. Fated as a hero for making the first solo transatlantic flight, he's elected on a platform to keep his country out of a European war and lead it on another path towards fascism. Of course, it didn't happen like this. Lindbergh was a leader of the anti-Semitic and isolationist America First Committee, but he never ran for president. Roosevelt comfortably won a third term. But the plot against America is the story of how one election could have reshaped the politics of the US and much beyond it. Now this historical fantasy by the late American novelist Philip Roth has been reimagined for television by my guest today, the writer David Simon. He's known for exploring the dark and secret sides of real life. After more than a decade as a police reporter in Baltimore, he spent a year shadowing investigations of murder to write Homicide, a year on the killing streets. Over five seasons, the acclaimed show The Wire transported us viewers into the corrupt and violent underbelly of its creator's home city. And the deuce delved deep into the nascent porn industry of the 1970s in New York. Well, his latest offering is wholly different. The plot against America follows an ordinary Jewish family in New Jersey as their world disintegrates around them and everyone is forced to take a side. You're listening to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy. And this week we're asking, what do alternative histories reveal about the present? David Simon, welcome to The Economist Asks. Thank you for your interest and for having me. Well, very much so. And I've, I've enjoyed watching it in the lockdown when we're at least able to get in more screen time. It certainly has slowed down life, hasn't it? Is it a good time for writers in the sense that all of the distractions that can intrude into a writer's life, a lot of them do disappear? Um, I would think so normally. I, I happen to have a nine-year-old daughter who we are now responsible for uh, entertaining and schooling. Yes, we're all trainee teachers, aren't we, on top of our day jobs? Yeah, I have a day job of being a, an elementary school teacher. And I realized that if any of those people are paid less than a million dollars a year, it's not enough. <laughs> a few, a lot of us are coming around to. And how much do you think that people watching TV for longer, perhaps, and often a bit more together, it's a return of that kind of viewing in some households. Do you think that has shaped the way that people would be watching, say, The Plot Against America in the current crisis. I had some weird fantasy when the show went on the air in the middle of um, quarantine uh, in this country that, oh my God, people are actually going to watch my one of my shows in real broadcast time because they have to, because they're, they're stuck at home and there's nothing else to do. I had fantasies that I would pull over a million viewers on a Sunday night. So when the first episode aired and we pulled the usual under half a million, I just had to laugh. 
not even a pandemic can get people to watch my television shows in the real time of broadcast. Let's turn to the plot against America. It strikes me as someone who's seen a lot of your work over the years, that it's, it's a very different approach in that you have tended to use gritty, true-to-life stories rooted in on-the-ground reporting. This is different, and it was a story that you clearly felt needed to be retold. Why now? You know, the book was written in 2004, and I don't think it was allegorical even to that time. I think it was a interesting historical exercise that Philip Roth entertained. He would tell the story that he found references. He was reading a, a history by Arthur Schlesinger, and, and he found references to the Republican efforts to recruit Charles Lindbergh to run on an isolationist platform in 1940 against Franklin Roosevelt. He became fascinated by that because in his memory, Lindbergh had gone from being one of the great American heroes of, of that generation, or of any generation, to being absolutely anathema if you were a Jewish American. He was isolationist. He was anti-Semitic. He was quite um, taken by the notion of of Hitler and Goring and, and the Nazi efficiency. He he wrote a book off of that, that, that encounter, that encounter with that historical aside. So when I first read it, I thought, well, interesting book, you know, very different for Roth, but it didn't strike me as being politically relevant uh, in, in any way. We were a country that didn't seem susceptible to that level of demagoguery or xenophobia or, or racial animus and fear. Um, and then 2016 happened. And, you know, the, the book takes on a completely different color. So Roth called this a false memoir. It was a fantasy, but it was closely built on details from his own life, some of which you reproduce in your adaptation. So we see his childhood self as the protagonist, his family. They have their real life uh, names. There's Herman, there's Bess and Sandy in the home neighbourhood of Newark. What's your own connection then to that period? What was the way into that? Yeah, I mean, there's no reason to do this novel except for the fact that uh, America has reached this critical mass moment politically where we are incredibly susceptible to our metastasizing fears about the other, uh, to our desire to withdraw from the world, as many isolationists were uh, in the run-up to World War II. And the notion of the, uh, the singular demagogue carrying a significant portion of the country with him, you know, through the use of, of fear and, and, and xenophobia and, and almost overt racism, um, has been realized. That is the current dynamic in which my country finds itself. So if you're a writer, you're looking for an allegory. You're looking for something that approximates this moment. For a nation of immigrants, we've, we've always had this problem of if we're here now, we don't want anyone else coming in. We want Americans to be who we are in, in this moment and not who they might be in the future. And whatever the current wave or the future of immigration is, it's just not American enough uh, for our imaginations. And that goes back to, to the 1850s and, and the know-nothings, and it goes back to, you know, in, in the 1850s, it was the Irish. <laughs> but that's, that's actually quite a testing point, isn't it, for making an analogy with 2016. So I wanted to ask you how much you felt this is something about a particular part of America, which, as you say, you could point to its response to the 1850s, to the response of 
part of society, to the German immigration of the late 19th century, which wasn't that friendly, or that President Trump, would you say 2016, is, is in some way a comparative point of view, is something different and specific. Which view do you err towards? I mean, I think it's the same fuel on which demagogues have run uh, for centuries, not just in my country, but in Europe as well. You're watching it now with the, with the rise of populism and nationalism again. The idea that the fresh wave of immigration is somehow going to make your country less than what it is, is something that any son of a bitch can actualize. And, and Trump has. And the truth is, there's no truth to it. The, the know-nothings were enraged at the, at the waves of Irish immigration in the mid-19th century in, in my country, um, that they were somehow less than white, <laughs> that they were less than human, um, and that they would, that they would stain the, the fabric of America. Um, and of course, the Irish became as American as anyone. Same thing with the Jews and the Italians in the, in the 1910s and, and, and turn of the century. Same thing now with black and brown people and Muslims and, and anybody else who is going to be the next wave. We always believe they're not going to be capable of assimilating. And yet, whoever they are, they assimilate so fast it makes your head spin. It's just the great political lie on which, you know, the demagogues will always run. And yet that same society has produced moderate government. It has produced centre-right government. It's produced centre-left government. It would appear, on the whole, to have had a balance built in. What do you think has changed? It also produced Barack Obama or Bill Clinton. It's, it's very naive to look at... at the transformation in four-year increments, that you elect a president and suddenly your economic paradigm shifts with the administration. A lot of the great damage done to the American economic engine has been at work since the 1970s. And we're only now starting to see the cumulative effect of the loss of collective bargaining as a, as a break on unrestrained capitalism, the, the, the collapse of unions. That's a process that began in, in if, I, if I had to date it, I would date it to 1980. We've made some terrible economic choices over the last 40 years. We've mistaken profit as a metric for um, the health of our society. It's a metric for wealth and not necessarily for the distribution of that wealth. And, and, and that's all it is. And we have done so with great deliberation. And we've left behind or impaired a significant portion of our population, the middle class and the working class. Having done so, we've made the field very fertile for the same kind of demagoguery and political machination that always produces um, a hard shift to the right. You know, there are underlying grievances that we've not addressed. One thing that struck me watching it after The Wire and The Juice more recently is the extent to which quite often the, one of the, the driving forces that I think propels your storylines is it's not so much the people, it's the system they're stuck in that's often, if you like, the true subject of the show. Now, the, the interesting thing with the, the Roth example is that these currents are around, as you've laid out, but it's Lindbergh, it's a charismatic individual who harnesses them. Does it therefore feel different that perhaps this is a different approach, more focused on what we used to call the great or not so great man or woman of history. Absolutely. You've seized on something that Roth himself said about Lindbergh. I had a chance to meet with him once um, before he passed away and discuss this project in, in some detail. And um, he made this point. He said, what Trump has actualized is the same thing that Lindbergh is actualizing in the book. That is parallel. That's a pathology that's deep in the American psyche. 
the anti-immigrant bias in a nation of immigrants. But the thing that amazed Roth is that in his imagining, and historically, because the Lindbergh premise is true, the Republicans did try to recruit him, and Roosevelt, of all the possible nominees who he might have to face in 1940, Lindbergh was the one who scared him the most. He didn't know how to contend with somebody who was that much a hero in the American mind. So Roth imagined the hero being the protagonist, and he imagined Lindbergh's great personal charm, you know, his, his boyish Midwestern clip voice and his cowlick and his self-effacing, polite way of uh, being an American. He imagined that being winning. He was astonished that Donald Trump, who has no great claim on heroism, uh, no, no pyrotechnical moment of greatness as Lindbergh did, but is instead a, uh, a real estate magnate and, and failed casino operator and reality show host, that he could actualize this stuff, that he could be the vehicle. Roth found that astonishing. Did, did you find it so astonishing? Well, because we didn't even need the hero. We didn't even need the figurehead to be heroic. And we would still go for it. As long as he activated our fears and our resentments and our petty jealousies, which are always there and latent. And he did. I know that the timelines here are not intended to be exact parallels. I mean, you're trying to run on tracks set by the book, but it is just perhaps worth reminding ourselves. It's written in 2004 when a lot of liberal coastal folk are pretty horrified by the George W. Bush presidency. And only 16 years have passed since then, but it feels like a completely different world, doesn't it? And a very different context. And I suppose if I had one challenge there, it would be that a lot of the things that, that people accuse George Bush of, warmongering was, was one, you know, slightly perhaps rather over-aired argument. I mean, the exact opposite is the case now, that the problem is, is not so much getting involved and blundering into conflicts in the wider world. It's withdrawing from the wider world. Most Americans were isolationist in 1940. They did not want to get involved in another European war. They regarded the First World War as a, as a ridiculous European-based disaster that left to your own devices in Europe, you were about to repeat. So that was the American temperament in 1940. I'd say there is a parallel in the sense of American interventions overseas in the last 15 years and the cost of that and the inconclusive nature of that and the unstrategic nature of that left a lot of Americans ready to withdraw on any terms. And so, yes, as disastrous as isolationism was as a policy in 1940, uh, and as we certainly knew that it was morally and strategically by 1945, we're in that same position now of, of, of the pendulum having swung the other way. Yeah, I see that as being entirely parallel. The decision to change the ending the point about Roth's ending is it is very uncanny to the extent that America re-engages with the world after Pearl Harbor, so it re reflects there the historical truth of the matter. But it also shows that history can turn on a dime. And it would be fair to say that you've gone another path. Well, I would say, and I actually said it to Roth, um, you know, I mean, it was my one concern was that having Lindbergh's plane disappear at the precise moment when he's ready for America to return to its... Rooseveltian normalcy seems a little due machina for the purposes of a six-hour miniseries. To have everything going in one way and then, then a single aircraft takes off and never comes down out of the clouds and Roosevelt returns to power doesn't seem to be a narrative that I can successfully convey after making people watch six hours of television. So 
I was interested in doing something a little different. But also, as far as the last few frames of film, you know, my country's in an election year, and it may be the most important election of my life. A lot of what Roth's novel is about is about what does the individual, what does the ordinary quotidian family of individuals do when confronted by increasing evidence that your republic and its norms of governance are no longer viable. The, the Levin family, uh, or the Roth family as it was in the book, they exist on a, on a spectrum from absolute dissent, as in the case of Alvin, to absolute collaboration in the, in the case of Evelyn and Bengelsdorf. He basically takes every character through their moment of what do you say when your government is no longer to be trusted? And we've all imagined ourselves in those positions. Would you go along to get along or would you fight? And what if the fight cost you? And so he examines all that beautifully in the novel. That's the power of the novel. I felt like that needed to be almost nailed to the idea that in November, um, my countrymen are, are, are going to be facing that exact moment. And do you have a hunch about the outcome of the election? I mean, you're pretty strong on what you feel should happen. I don't know how you feel about the contenders. You're going to be putting a Joe Biden up against a Donald Trump. What's the outcome? Biden was not my preferred choice for the Democratic nominee, but I will support him. Um, I have no sense of how this election is going to go. I don't trust in anything anymore. Um, in fact, I scarcely trust in our own electoral systems, given the, uh, the willingness to use disinformation and voter suppression to, to alter the, um, the outcomes. I think we've entered a point in human history where our digital capacities for conveying information and data have now outstripped our ability to control and make ethical and make correct that data. And I don't know what's going to happen. You know, I was about to say, do you think you're veering into a kind of liberal pessimism? But I have a feeling you're going to say too right. Well, I don't think it matters uh, whether I'm pessimistic or optimistic. The fight's the same. I like to misquote because I probably butcher it, you know, not speaking French. Camus wrote that to commit to a, to a course of action that you know is just or that you believe is just but that has little chance of success is absurd. But to not commit to that same course of just action is equally absurd and only one offers the chance for dignity. Can I ask you a little bit about your work more broadly? And I, I think a lot of us have uh, dipped back into the wire. It feels like a time to go back into a very immersive series like that where we feel we can follow the characters but also follow the warp and weft of kind of policy in, in the case of the wire, it's drugs policy and the criminal justice system. What's your response to looking at The Wire now? Does it feel like that is from a different world or does it feel like those stories, the problems, the tensions that it describes are as lively as ever? I have to confess, I don't go back and read stuff I wrote and I don't watch the shows after they're on the air. All you see is the stuff that could be better. <laughs> I, I felt that way ever since I was a newspaper reporter. I, I think I'm I'm quoting that great liberal Winston Churchill now when he said, books aren't finished, they're just abandoned. Um, at a certain point, the deadline or the resources that you had at the moment to make the film or write the book, they're exhausted and the, the deadline's upon you and you, you let it go. And then if you're smart, you don't look back. But does your mind ever wander then to what would have happened to that 
community, that shifting community around the corner in, in Baltimore and how it would have fared in these years or what policy changes, either big or small, would have befallen the people at the sharp end of the system. I mean, uh, the things that The Wire argued that the drug war was um, an abyss that was not only going to destroy communities, but it was going to destroy police work. I think that's actually come to pass in ways that uh, are even startling for the people who wrote The Wire. Um, My city now has the highest murder rate of its history per capita. Uh, We are incapable of policing ourselves. The police department has been enmeshed in, in corruption scandals of a kind that we've never seen You'd have to go back to the early 1960s, pre-1966 reforms to, to see a Baltimore police department this corrupt. And it all is rooted in the fact that we turned our city into a Wild West where uh, instead of policing people and, and protecting neighborhoods and solving crime and addressing ourselves to the actual fundamental of violent crime, we, we enforced a drug prohibition that made the entire population or a significant chunk of that population into the enemy. And so the police spent two or three generations behaving as if they were um, enforcing the, the, the will of, uh, of an outside state in these neighborhoods, as if it were Gaza or Soweto in their moment, um, and in, instead of policing. And it's poor African-Americans who have really at the, the sharp end of this in, in the drama as in, in real life to do, do you think the Obama years made any difference? That if you drew the camera back earlier in our conversation, a good hundred years or more than a hundred years, what, where do you think that would fit in terms of impacts on the kind of people that you featured in your dramas? Okay, my job. I, I tell stories. That's what I do. I've told stories since I was a newspaper reporter. Now, when I first started as a newspaper reporter, I did think in some very vainglorious way that I would tell the right stories in the right way and they would come along behind me and they would fix whatever I was writing about and they would pass a better law and things would get better. And one of the first big stories I ever worked on, in fact, it was one that got me hired at the paper in Baltimore, was the basketball coach in Maryland at the university. And you don't need to know the details of it, but he did something really bad, really bad. Like in this Me Too era, he would have been fired immediately. And I happened to catch him. I happened to be the reporter who caught him doing it. So they had a big investigation and they convened a faculty, you know, whatever, to, to look into the matter. And then they slapped him on the wrist and gave him a contract for five years for more money than God. Um, and at that exact moment, uh, which would have been about 1983, 84, I learned something about being a storyteller, which is you're responsible for the story. What people do with the story, the best I can say is, hey, I told you something that I think is true. So you can't say you didn't know. Whether or not things get better or worse is way above my pay grade, or considering I work for HBO, maybe below it. But either way, it's not my responsibility. And if I try to take responsibility for for it, I'm going to be disappointed because in the end, my resume says I'm a storyteller, and that's all. And as a storyteller, and you've mentioned HBO, and you've said how important premium cable was to changing the way and stories could be told and making that kind of drama that was rich and textured and could also be very socially relevant and often have a darker narrative. How do you think that is now faring at the moment, given the unassailable advantage, we might say, of some of the the big platforms, and especially Netflix? What's your feeling about what comes out of that? Streaming has, uh, listen, it's a good thing in terms of the market because there's a lot more television getting made, a lot of more stories being told. That's great. 
And streaming seems to be a predominant form of, of listen, it's how most people are acquiring the wire now is to, is to watch it on their own terms at their own time. So I think that the world's headed that way. If you're asking me if I buy into the notion that it's the golden age of television, I'd say there's more of better television, there's more of it being made. I would also say of the usual schlock, there's more of it being made. Um, I think probably in about the same proportions. But you know, I will credit the notion of once you got rid of the advertisers upon which network was dependent, then television could become a grown-up narrative form. When you didn't have to stop every 13 minutes and keep the audience in a good frame of mind so that they would buy Lincoln Continentals and iPods and blue jeans, uh, you could actually tell a darker story or a story that made people uncomfortable or that might maybe not everybody comes back after every commercial break. And at that point, you could be a grown-up storyteller in the medium. What TV writing in particular are you admiring at the moment? So I keep finding stuff that um, is maybe a little bit dated. There's a show out of Canada called Slings and Arrows about a Shakespearean repertory company that is just brilliantly uh, conceived and, and executed. Uh, somebody turned me on to uh, a German miniseries from years back called Heimat, which is excellent. Heimat is indeed excellent. Uh, anything from US television that we should direct our attention? I was wondering if you had a quarantine binge watch. It's, but it's not, not going to sound dark and foreboding enough for me, but in the realm of comedy, uh, the show Brockmire is genuinely side-splittingly funny and and shrewd about the human condition at the same time. It's very funny, Hank Azaria. Can I give you one in return? Sure. I'm going to send you to Trotsky, a Russian production of a couple of years ago, which is now on Netflix. And if you imagine Netflix production, it's most kind of fireworks and fizz and sex on trains. And you apply it to the Russian Revolution huh. and Trotsky. Yeah. Now, this is, um, this is uh, Russian origin? It is Channel One Russia deciding that it's trying to slightly rehabilitate Trotsky and then I think getting a bit ideologically lost in the Trotsky and Lenin argument. So that doesn't end well, does it? I mean, that's the end of the wire in terms of where that goes uh, once we get to Mexico. But, you know, I will say about time somebody put in a good word for Leon over there. That's not so bad. I'm curious now. I'll watch that. Well, David Simon, thank you very much for our tour of your latest drama and its resonances, and we've swapped tips. David Simon, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Be well. And we'd love to know what you think of that comparison between Charles Lindbergh and the Trump era. Is it exaggerated or perhaps right on point? What do you think? Write to us, radio at economist.com, or you can tweet us at Economist Radio. And to find out more about the roots of American isolationism, listen to Checks and Balance, our weekly podcast on American politics. That's Checks and Balance on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. I'm Anne McElvoy, and in London, this is The Economist. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.